Welcome. This is Michael Volkoff, and this is episode 44 of Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Our episode today is a review of compliance program best practices and specifically a focus on the FCPA guidance and evaluation of corporate compliance programs. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining me today on Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, a podcast focused on the legal and compliance industry. Today's podcast is sponsored by Tom Fox, who has released his new comprehensive book, The Complete Compliance Handbook. Thank you, Mike. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'm extraordinarily pleased to announce the publication of my latest book, The Complete Compliance Handbook. This one-volume compendium provides you the most up-to-date advice on what constitutes a best practices compliance program. I bring together the top ideas, the top commentators, the top techniques, and topics that you can incorporate into your compliance program, literally in a 31-day format, to more fully operationalize your company's compliance regime. It incorporates the Department of Justice's 2017 Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs and information from the new FCPA Corporate Enforcement Policy. If you want one volume to guide you in operationalizing compliance, this is it. It's available starting May 21 on Amazon.com. If you'd like an autographed copy, please order one from my website, www.fcpacompliancereport.com, and I will mail it to you. This is Tom Fox. I hope you will check it out. I know you will find it useful. Thanks, Tom. Today's episode is about compliance program best practices. Uh, And today I want to focus on what I think are the two most important sources of compliance guidance. One, the FCPA guidance, which was released in November 2012, and two, the evaluation of corporate compliance programs, which was issued by the Justice Department in February 2017, and contains a list of questions designed to focus attention on specific issues and elements of a corporate compliance program. In my view, both of these documents provide the most accurate and helpful guidance on how to design, implement, monitor, and improve a corporate compliance program. Even if you're not under investigation or threat of a government enforcement action, the principles set forth in both of these documents are helpful to all legal and compliance professionals. In addition, the government guidance documents also create certain safe harbors, is what I call them, for corporate compliance programs and allow chief compliance officers to rely on discussions and hypotheticals that are outlined in uh, particularly the FCPA guidance uh, to employ uh, similar strategies to solve specific compliance problems. Both sources uh, provide important directions on a number of issues, some of which uh, I plan to discuss in this episode. Those include culture of compliance, the role of the chief compliance officer, code of conduct and policies and procedures, training programs, uh, testing and auditing and improvement of your compliance program, third-party risk management observations, and mergers and acquisitions. So let's start with a discussion of a culture of compliance. As I am sure everybody's tired of hearing me talk about, but uh, as I mentioned this on numerous and repetitive occasions, uh, compliance professionals, government regulators, and corporate stakeholders are all increasing attention on the virtues of a corporate culture of ethics and compliance. 
On this issue, the government has stressed the importance of various factors, including senior management commitment to a company's culture through communications and conduct. Remember the end conduct. In other words, has senior management clearly articulated company standards, communicated them in unambiguous terms, adhered to them scrupulously, and disseminated them throughout the organization? When assessing a company's culture and senior leadership commitment to tone at the top, the government looks to words and actions taken by senior management to promote or reflect company culture. Remember, words alone are not enough. A company also has to take steps to embed the culture throughout the company. It's not just having tone at the top. It's also a mood in the middle, as they say. Uh, to reinforce a culture of compliance in middle management and among all of the employees in the company. Among the senior executives, companies uh, basically have started to develop shared commitments to this uh, idea and to spreading the culture and to functions and tasks that will do that and specific actions that can be taken by senior leaders and stakeholders such as business and operational managers, finance people, procurement, legal, human resources, and, uh, and making sure that they are all part of this organizational effort to spread the message and to share information among themselves as to the operation of each of their functions. When it comes to the company's board of directors, best practices dictate several important practices. A board should have a, uh, some compliance program expertise. This is a new and cutting-edge area where a board member be, may be somebody who previously served as a chief compliance officer or who was familiar with ethics and compliance program requirements. A chief compliance officer also has to report quarterly in person to the board or the board committee, uh, including an executive session. And the board has to be trained on how to oversee and monitor the company's ethics and compliance program and make an affirmative effort to stay up to date on ethics and compliance program issues, the company's performance, and measure and monitor the overall culture of the company. Let's turn now to the role of a chief compliance officer. The FCPA guidance and evaluation documents, and I may sometimes refer to them both uh, as guidance documents, focus attention on the importance of an independent and empowered CCO. A chief compliance officer has to have appropriate authority and independence. That's what I mean by empowerment. To demonstrate this point, the guidance suggests that a CCO document past instances when the CCO raised concerns and ensure that there's documentation that the issue was appropriately handled. A chief compliance officer has to have adequate autonomy and independence from corporate management. If a CEO overrides a CCO on a regular basis, such actions may reflect a lack of autonomy. The guidance sources, though, don't mandate a specific type of reporting relationship, whether a CCO should report to the CEO, the GC, or somebody else in the corporate executive level. However, it's clear from prior government speeches and statements that CCOs that do not report to the CEO uh, and report, let's say, to the chief legal officer will be closely scrutinized. But each company, remember, is different, and the size and complexity of the organization can definitely be taken into consideration. 
and of course, every CCO has to maintain a dotted line reporting relationship to the board or a board committee responsible for reviewing a company's compliance program. It's not, there is no one-size-fits-all solution here, and in smaller companies, I often see chief compliance officers who are reporting to the chief legal officer, and those situations can work out just fine. But in recent years, the government has devoted, been devoting more attention to reviewing the allocation of resources to the compliance function, especially in relation to the company's risk profile. Again, looking at specific instances, companies should document occasions when a CCO requests additional resources and receives such resources. Obviously, if the record shows that the CCO sought resources, was regularly turned down, and that the company experienced a problem uh, you know, partially because of those uh, failures to allocate resources, the government will be very concerned about uh, such conduct and such uh, a series of events. Now let's discuss a company's code of conduct and policies and procedures. Uh, a company's code of conduct is the foundation of a compliance program. It has to be clear, concise, and accessible in foreign languages and accessible on the intranet, uh, the company's intranet. The company has to periodically review, update, and keep its code current. Just as important, however, is the effort taken by companies to communicate and train its employees on implementing the code. Most companies, as a best practice, conduct annual training for everyone on its code of conduct, including its board of directors and uh, senior executives. As to related policies and procedures, these are usually key to individual subject areas listed in the code of conduct. A policy and procedure management team should be tasked with this responsibility so that there is a consistent approach to the design and implementation of each of the policies and procedures. The company's business units have to be involved in this process so that any new policy or procedure takes their views into account and implementation then is coordinated among the business units. Let's talk about training programs. Uh, the guidance and sources both address the importance of training programs and include a number of recommendations concerning training and certification programs. Training and certification for all directors, officers, relevant employees, and where appropriate third-party agents and business partners is an important aspect of a compliance program. The training programs have to include a mix of web-based and in-person training and cover topics like company policies and procedures, instruction on applicable laws, but most importantly, they want to see practical advice to address real-life scenarios and case studies. That's perhaps one of the more important aspects of the training program guidance. Just as important, uh, however, is that the company has to target training requirements to key audiences tailored to specific risks and roles and responsibilities. For example, a training program for accounts payable staff should be different than for sales employees. The guidance documents also focus on a, a term called relevant control people and a specific training program designed for people in accounts payable, people who have third-party due diligence responsibilities, or people who are responsible, let's say, for onboarding vendors and those types of functions. 
Training expectations have now morphed into a risk-based or targeted training program, not just mass company-wide code of conduct training. A company has to devote attention to the format and content for each audience, the language that is used, and most importantly, measurement of training effectiveness. In other words, how is the company testing its training program to make sure that it's effective and that people are learning what they need to learn? Now let's turn to assessments, audits, and review of compliance uh, programs. And this is an area where I see significant omissions or failures by companies. A compliance program has to constantly evolve. An effective compliance program uh, will inevitably uncover compliance weaknesses and then require enhancements. To do this, however, companies have to regularly review and, and audit their compliance programs. This requires companies to embrace robust audit functions, like a company should constantly ask itself, what kind of audit program has been implemented? What types of issues have been discovered and reported to whom? Are audit results reported to senior management and or the board? A company should regularly test its financial and compliance controls to uncover these weaknesses and risk areas using employee sur surveys, testing projects with targeted audits, and analysis of compliance data. Now, turning to third-party due diligence and risk management, I'm, I don't intend to do a whole presentation on this because obviously this could take uh, hours, but I want to make a few specific observations on this subject. Due diligence screening and onboarding of a third party is just the beginning of the risk management process. Companies have to attend to monitoring and review of third-party activities. A key to this process, in my view, is designation of a relationship manager in the company, a business representative who maintains communications with the third party and its activities. The relationship manager should be trained on compliance risks and how to manage those risks with contracts and supervision, inquiries, data points, and how to make sure that the activities of the third party are not creating significant risks. Second, a company has to integrate procurement and vendor management into the third-party risk management uh, program uh, for agents, distributors, and representatives. In other words, all of this has to be um, uh, mixed together and integrated into one uh, program. Third, companies have to incorporate beneficial ownership inquiries and confirmation uh, into the third-party risk management process. Let's discuss the final topic for today, mergers and acquisitions. Companies that depend on acquisitions for growth and expansion need to dedicate efforts to a post-acquisition integration process. Uh, the focus is now more on integration rather than uh, a robust due diligence process in the beginning. Obviously, that's important still, but now the focus has, has been turned into integrating the acquired company into the compliance program, identifying potential risk areas, and ensuring that the acquired company does not create any significant risk of violations. Companies have to adopt policies and procedures to guide the integration process, 
including how to assess potential violations, remediate any potential risks, and conduct focused audits of the acquired company. This is all in addition to obviously integrating the business, the communication systems, the controls, and uh, all of the support operations from the acquired company back into uh, the home company. Thanks again for listening to Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Please subscribe to the podcast series. The Volkoff Law Group believes that every company should have a robust ethics and compliance program. Experience and research show that ethical companies are better performers in the global marketplace. At ethical companies, employees believe in the company, they feel vested, and are more productive. As a result, misconduct rates are much lower and financial performance is higher. We can help you achieve these benefits through an effective ethics and compliance program. You can learn more about our commitment to effective ethics and compliance programs at our website, www.volkoflaw.com, our award-winning blog, Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, and our podcast You can contact me at my email address, mvolkoflaw.com. Let us know how we can help you achieve your